Greetings and salutations, and welcome to This Ends at Prom. A coming-of-age podcast highlighting cinema about or marketed towards teen girls. I'm one of your hosts, BJ Colangelo, and I'm joined by my wife. Harmony Colangelo, a trans woman who grew up watching none of these movies. Is today's movie a queen bee? Or are we killing the teen dream? Get in, loser. We're analyzing the movies people make fun of us for loving. I don't wanna be your merch girl. I wanna be your goddamn idol. And I don't wanna have to work twice as hard for the same motherfucking title. But I. Thank you for being here, prom party. Again! Very diplomatic of you. Thank you, I try. <laughs> <laughs> we are well into sequel month, and oh goodness, we're talking about The Princess Diaries 2, a royal engagement. More like royal enragement. <laughs> oh man, this, this movie is a little disappointing. It's a movie. It's a shame. Yeah, yeah. It made a lot so- of money. I'm sorry to give away the plot like at the start of our episode like this, but it's like, you you know, right? You know this isn't <laughs> as good as the first one, right? Look, I know that there are some Princess Diary 2 defenders out there. I I commend you for being on the front lines of this war that you will not be winning. Uh, but The Princess Diaries 2 is a movie I wanted to talk about for sequel month because this to me is... A, a perfect example of how something can go completely off the rails once you no longer have source material to work with. That is evident. Mm-hmm. So as we you know, discussed during our first episode uh, on The Princess Diaries, they are based on the beloved book series by Meg Cabot. Um, this movie is not. <laughs> this movie is based on the characters, but the story itself is not sourced in any of her books. And oh, does it show. And it is a, a true shame because uh, Shonda Rhimes wrote this, who is absolutely wonderful. Um, but I think that she was in a a losing battle um, with with this. I, th- I think she was kind of set up to fail a little bit with this movie. But luckily, she has said on record that uh, the experience was wonderful, if only because it meant she got to work with Julie Andrews. And honestly, I would take a bad movie if it meant I got to work with Julie Andrews too. It's true, though. I did ask BJ. Is this maybe the the least good movie Julie Andrews has ever been in? And you went, okay, but the third Shrek movie. And I went, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Debatable, but maybe. <laughs> it's uh, certainly not uh, not one of her best. No. Um, but she is doing the best that she can with She's great. what she was given. Okay, but for real, though. Like, I just want to say this. Like, I, I know I'm dunking on this movie a lot in, like, the opening minutes here. Everyone who is in this movie is doing Really good work. I agree completely. I think everyone is doing the best with what they were given. Yeah. But if you have somehow not seen The Princess Diaries to a Royal Engagement, um, here is the synopsis. Now settled in Genovia, Princess Mia faces a new revelation. She is being primed for an arranged marriage to an English suitor. Uh, the tagline that was going on for this was that she had uh, 30 days to find a king or else or something like that. It was something okay. just really ridiculous um and 
I think (laughs) the premise alone is the problem. I agree, but that premise does sound like a reality TV show people would watch now. Oh, yeah. Like a 90 day fiance. Like Uh we we Americans are obsessed with royalty and their weddings, apparently. Mm -hmm. So like, no, people would watch the shit out of this. (laughs) (laughs) No, you're totally right. Um, But yeah, the the premise itself kind of betrays uh, who this character is and the character that we were introduced to with the the first movie. And, you know, that is that is a shame. Um, Had you seen this movie? My brain says no. No, I have okay. not. Um, I remember parts of this movie because they were absolutely used in the trailer. Mm-hmm. Um, like, I remember Julie Andrews surfing elegantly down a mattress. Okay, she looks so elegant, though. She, she does. looks beautiful. She looks magic. It's when she says, like, oh, it's magic. And it's like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. But Julie is. Andrews is magic. You are magic. <laughs> yeah. Um, I remember that was in the trailer um, when she almost shoots her maids or whatever mm-hmm. with an arrow. I remember that was in the trailer. So, like, there were these things that happened and it was like a, like someone flipped on the lights and then turned it off really fast. Gotcha. Where it was like I saw something went, oh, no, I recognize that. And then it went away <laughs> because I never actually saw the movie. But I, there was the moments. Mm-hmm. So that's about as far as I got. Beautiful. Um, I saw this in theaters. Yeah. I was disappointed. Yeah. <laughs> um, my biggest disappointment is the lack of Heather Matarazzo. How dare you sideline Lily Moskowitz, who, again, if you listen to the first episode, I firmly believe is the best best friend character in a teen girl movie, and they just do nothing with her. No, they do something with her. They make sure that in every single scene, she introduces herself by her full name so that you remember she's here. I hate it how (laughs) dare they (laughs) it's so infuriating but before we dive in any deeper it's time for everyone's favorite part of the show hey there prom party hopefully you are enjoying march's sequel month we have so much stuff popping off on the patreon this month and i only realized when i put it on a list to record these things how much we actually do over there sometimes The suggestion box that we introduced last month is very, very full of awesome movies. Um, We are always looking for more. And honestly, if we end up with duplicates, then that just lets us know that it's a high priority. And then we pay a little more attention to that one. Also coming to the Patreon this month for our Sadie Hawkins boy episodes, we're doing Bill and Ted and ready to rumble for all the people who are craving us to talk about more wrestling stuff more consistently. For our top tier, we're also still working our way through Freaks and Geeks. It's been a really fun rewatch, and we have three really good episodes we're covering this month, but I think I can probably get away with saying that every month, honestly. Also, we have the monthly playlist, BJ's official This Ends at Prom newsletter, and for our musical milestone, we are covering the mistreatment and ascension of Rebecca Black, who just released her first official album last month. In addition to all of the cool new things we've got going on, there's the extensive back catalog of previously released stuff. And as always, if you're not able to subscribe to the Patreon, we totally understand. Just go ahead and give us that Dave Meltzer five-star rating and maybe share us with a friend who you think enjoys what we will do. With all that out of the way, thank you so much. And now back to the movie. Alrighty, so this movie came out in 2004, which most people will remember as the year Mean Girls came out, because Mm -hmm. this is a a, a big shift 
year for us. Uh, but what was going on contextually? So first and foremost, every single sequel we're doing this month, and this wasn't planned out, um, but it's just kind of the way it happened. They all are sequels the following year to the previous film. Every oh, one of weird. them, but this one. Oh, oh. Where in can- in canon, it's been five years. Mm-hmm. So that means Mia is now 21, and she's mm-hmm. of age to be married and not have people get mad at the writers. But in reality, it's been like three years. A lot of things changed in those three years. The biggest one is that the Disney Channel blew up. The Disney Channel exploded after mm-hmm. the first Princess Diaries. Yes. So you can really point to Hilary Duff as being like, the first Disney Channel star of that mm-hmm. whole millennium, that whole era. Mm-hmm. Lizzie McGuire was a big deal. Raven Simone starts blowing up. She has a cameo in this thing, and it feels remarkably like the Miley Cyrus cameo that is at the end of High School Musical 2. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's now feeling like Disney has found its footing mm-hmm. with what teen stuff is going. Like we, we are we are thoroughly past the Disney Renaissance of animated films, mm-hmm. and we are now in the Disney Channel machine, and that's that's yeah. the product that we are putting out. And it's going to affect how a lot of adolescent films for girls are going to be for the next decade. Mm-hmm. No, you're absolutely right. And I'm glad that you brought up the, the Raven Simone cameo in this, because you're absolutely right. Like, Raven was kind of shoehorned in a lot of Disney products for a lot of years. Like Xenon is the big one mm-hmm. where she was kind of just like the side character. And then that's a Raven happened. And it's like, wait, she is a formidable star. Like mm-hmm. she is also money. She's, like she's a cheetah girl. She's a cheetah girl. Like she's, she's going to be in a lot of things. Mm-hmm. So they put her in this and it very much feels like they put her in this because they wanted the excuse for her to have that song and to have that duet with Julie Andrews mm-hmm. and, you know, make a big deal out of it. And, you know, on on one hand, I think that that's great. I love the idea of having her here, but you're totally right in that it does start to feel like, oh, this is the Disney machine starting to c- kind of connect things because it's not like they're making their own like cinematic universe like Marvel or anything. No. But they are making sure that yes, in High School Musical, you see Miley Cyrus and you know that that is Hannah Montana. And that is a reminder that you should go watch Hannah Montana. Mm-hmm. And then you see Raven Simone here and it's like, and don't you love her? Isn't she great? Isn't she talented? Reminder, that's a Raven is on on Tuesdays on this Chime channel. Like it very much feels like that's what's happening here. And there's so much weird disjointed stuff like that in this movie if that makes sense like there's so many like cute little nods to the previous movie there's cute little nods to julie andrews being mary poppins like there's a lot of shit like that going on in this movie so that it stops feeling like a true to form sequel and starts feeling like a hey remember this it feels like how disney is making their sequels for disney plus now yeah. Oh, yeah. That's, That's what a it feels great like. comparison. Um, also, if you want to look at like even just outside of the Disney Channel, because obviously there's there's been synergy between Disney films and Disney like at home stuff. Like you had the direct mm-hmm. VHS sequels. You had the cartoon shows based on the movies like Buzz Lightyear, Star Command, uh, Aladdin, et cetera, et cetera. But you start to expand this out more and This is the same year that we get Confessions of a Teenage Drama Queen with Lindsay Lohan, who obviously had done The Parent Trap and Freaky Friday and was like, similar to Anne Hathaway, was like this outlier of the Disney machine. Like she didn't have a show, but she was recognizably a Disney kid. 
Absolutely. I mean, she didn't do Phantom of the Opera because she was contractually obligated to do this. Which because, is also this year. Which is, yeah. So this is this is a movie that she did instead of doing that massive piece. Yeah. And she would have been great because we know now, um, and we see it a little bit in this movie, Anne Hathaway can sing. Yeah, she can sing very well. Yes. So looking at between Princess Diaries 1 and Princess Diaries 2, Disney is is doing stuff with Anne Hathaway. They make Ella Enchanted starring her, which I distinctly remember was set to Hey Ya by Outcast for the trailer for some reason. I don't know, because she shakes it in the trailer. There's like some anachronistic music, kind of like a Knight's Tale, but not done as well as I would hope. Gotcha. They also had her voice the main character in The Cat Returns when they did the American dub of the Ghibli movie. So you start to see this pattern of Disney putting their power behind specific people and making those people a Disney branded person. Well, it's also very important to note that El Enchanted is not a Disney movie. Is it not? No, El Enchanted is not a Disney it movie. It feels so much like a Disney movie. Yeah, it's not. It's based on the book of the same name, and it is written by Karen McCullough Lutz and Kirsten Smith, who are people we talk about a lot because they wrote 10 Things I Hate About You, Legally Blonde, The House Bunny, The Ugly Truth, She's the Man, and also El Enchanted. Dude, I am a fool. I just assumed it was Disney because it looks so much like Disney. Then again, you also have like hoodwinked. Well, it's also a Cinderella story, which is not Disney as well. I, but like even even me screwing that up, that speaks more to like how much the Disney brand is influencing pop culture mm-hmm. outside of itself. No, you're absolutely right. And like I know we talk about it a little bit on our Cinderella story episode, which is that people were kind of banking on the confusion. Mm-hmm. And Anne Hathaway being in Ella Enchanted, which is also based on a book which has fairy tales. Hilary like, Duff being the is Cinderella. A Cinderella story. Yeah, that like this is the the hopes that people will think, oh, this is a Disney movie because these are faces that we recognize with Disney and we're dealing with fairy tale properties. It makes it feel almost like those uh the, the, those those dollar store bin DVDs that people buy that like, oh grandparents, what what's the name of that movie that that my that my granddaughter likes? Cold? <laughs> <laughs> you mean frozen grandma? Oh, cold. It's stuff like, it feels like that, where <laughs> it feels like you're making yeah. your own Disney mockbusters, but you're releasing them theatrically to success. And this movie almost feels like Disney is mockbustering themselves in this weird amalgamation of a, like, 13 going on 30 rom-com, but also Disney Channel nonsense like The Sleepover. And this is also the same year as The Sleepover. Yeah. Like, there's so many weird things happening at this specific point in time. I'm glad that you brought up, though, kind of like the 13 going on 30 rom-com style of it, because there are so many set pieces in this movie that feel like something out of a Julia Roberts movie, mm-hmm. and then suddenly you're thrown into a scene that feels like a decom, and Dude. it's like, you get tonal whiplash within like these very specific niche subgenres that unless you're familiar with them, you don't recognize what's happening. She has this red dress that is styled like... Pretty Woman. Yes. Oh my God. It looks just like it looks like like royal Pretty Woman dress. Like you called it when we were watching it, and I was like, "Holy shit!" Yes, you're a hundred percent right. And I never would have thought about that until you said it. It just makes this movie very confused and mm-hmm. tonally weird. And also, um, we spend a large chunk of like the first thirty minutes of this movie not with Mia. Yeah. Yeah. It's a. Uh, it's very very strange. So. There is a piece that I'm going to be referring to throughout the episode that was uh, written on Medium through Fanfare. 
and it's written by Amanda K. Oaks, and it is called Princess Diaries 2 is the worst sequel ever made. And this was part of a series where different writers would suggest which sequel they think is the worst thing ever and argue their points. And most of them are, like, really obvious sequels, like the bad Rambo movies, which, like, who fucking cares? Which is, like, every Rambo movie. Because <laughs> right. they all betray the first one. <laughs> right. So then to see this one pop up in that, like, lineup, I was like, oh, I Someone's got this. some feelings. Someone's got some feelings, and I agree with them. And so how this article even opens, it says, is the first Princess Diaries movie a faithful adaptation of Meg Cabot's beloved book series? Absolutely not. But is it a delightful movie that holds some of the same spirit while being more upbeat and Disney friendly? Absolutely. The same cannot be said for its travesty of a sequel, Princess Diaries 2. I still remember how excited I was to hear there would be a second Princess Diaries movie, and I also remember how confused I felt by the trailer, which bears little resemblance to the books or prior movie. And then I saw the thing in theaters, an experience from which I have never fully recovered. And I think the important thing that that she says in that is that it's not just that the Princess Diaries 2 does not feel in line with the book series, but it definitely doesn't feel in line with the fucking first movie. It just has this shift of focus where, hey, you want to care about what's going on with Joe and Grandma, right? You want to care about what's going on with John Reese davies who is marvelous in this movie, even if the material's he not good. He is a cartoon villain in the best way possible. He's so good. You want to focus on Chris Pine and his strangely light eyebrows <laughs> and his like his hair is way too thick his, in this like, movie lego hair that they just snapped <laughs> on him that like even with these sideburns yeah. um we want to spend all this time with them we want to spend time with the reporters we want to spend time with everybody that isn't mia mm-hmm. and it just feels weird like so much of how this movie is formed feels like a reference to look a different disney property like Oh, my God. Uh, Julie Andrews says that she has experience flying. See, remember Mary Poppins? Look at that. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, uh. There's Raven. It's a different Disney property. But also it's like got a million references to the first movie that don't amount to anything other than member, mm-hmm. which is how Disney is doing their current thing, which is honestly like that's how that 90s show is doing things. It's like really boiled down to like you really like boiled away all of the flavor and just kind of left with like the trace elements of the original thing at this point. Mm -hmm. Like that's it. It feels like a sequel made for the streaming era 15 years early. Yeah. It's, it's really strange how, how this functions. So one of my biggest complaints about this is the time jump, because obviously when we met Mia, she was, 15 and like getting her driver's license and Mm -hmm. she was a struggling teen and now suddenly she's a college graduate she's also being primed to take over the throne from grandma uh like very very soon Mm -hmm. and she also now needs to get married so the problem that happens by doing this time jump is twofold is that one we have lost years of character development Mm -hmm. and maturation like we saw her when she didn't know how to walk in shoes and she was eating pizza with M&Ms and throwing tantrums and falling off of bleachers. And now suddenly she's a queen. Like we, we skipped a few steps here. So that's an issue because then Mia as like a more adult figure, like it doesn't really gel well with what we're used to for that character. Um, 
like her feeling like, oh, I have this obligation to get married and do all these things. Like that is not the Mia we met in the last movie. Mm -hmm. The Mia we met in the last movie is like a feminist and is a f f like Has really this into hippie mom. Yeah, she's a hippie mom, and like her best friend is like an activist and own you know has like the public access channel where she talks about like activism. So for her to suddenly be very chill and like almost encouraging of falling into these traditional roles doesn't make sense. And the way you could justify it is like, oh, well, she's doing this because she loves Genovia so much and she wants to be a good queen to them. And this is part of their tradition and she's trying to respect that. Okay, but we didn't see five years of her falling in love with Genovia. Mm -hmm. We didn't see five years of her like being so immersed in this country that she would give anything to to represent them the way that they deserve. Like, that doesn't exist for us. So it just feels like, oh, wait, this character that we fell in love with in the first movie is now completely opposite of who she who she was, and we're just supposed to accept that and be cool with it? No, I, w I wouldn't say that she's a complete opposite, but I would say that she is very changed. And we don't see the change. And they should have established in, like, the first 20, 30 minutes of this movie that she has changed, that she's fallen in love with with her country, and that that should have been the first 30 minutes of the movie, but it's not. No, we get, like, we get, her doing it, her diary entry, and that's our exposition dump, and we're just supposed to accept it and move on. Correct. It feels like all of, like, the political stuff in The Phantom Menace that people complained about, where it's like, man, you know, I'm here for a sci-fi adventure. You know what? I don't want politics. <laughs> like, it feels like giving children that and expecting them to be cool with that, it just feels like a misplace of priorities and granted the movie does kind of find its footing like towards the back end like the last third i think it finally figures out what to do with her and meld these stories together i agree but you could have done that the whole time you could have done it better it just feels confused and it just is like i I, I guess you could say that she has changed over the course of five years of being away at college and now Grattan, she's not new to being a princess anymore. So she's matured and she has a slight more bit of elegance. But like the trace elements of who she was in the first movie is like, guess what? She just falls down a lot in this one. She falls down a lot. Her her ring flies off because remember that happened in the last movie. Haha, <laughs> happens all the time. Like I, I give them credit that she does get to go to college and get a degree. Um didn't think that that would be a thing, so good for her on that. But th I think the example that betrays Mia the most as a character is when she sees her suite for the first time and she is just dazzled by clothing and jewelry and accessories. We're, like, we're going we're gonna to give you these very um, Princess Diana, like, pencil skirt suits. We're going to give you these looks. And... I think that they maybe maybe there was a maybe there was a misunderstanding of the appeal of the first one and why it was so charming, mm -hmm. which was the first one's you know just an average girl in San Francisco who finds out one day that she's a princess and like that's exciting like oh my god every girl wants to be a princess that's great, and now you're seeing like the material payoffs of being a princess and it feels shallow and it feels uninteresting and she doesn't get to actually use her power as a princess she's just doing like schmoozy formality stuff which is not a compelling part of, of, of royalty certainly in like a storybook sense it's not until i'd say like that parade where she starts hanging out with orphan children where it's like oh no this is what the mia of the first movie would do with her princess power absolutely that's when the movie starts to figure itself out i am so with you and i love that you point out like 
it feels like Disney doesn't understand what the appeal was to the first movie because I feel like this is a continuing problem that they have. And the closest example that I can bring up is the Encanto merch debacle. Do you know about this? I don't know anything about it. I never even saw Encanto. It's very good. Um, so the Encanto merch debacle is that Obviously, when you are creating merchandising for movies, um, you do that well before it is out there. It's the same reason why We Don't Talk About Bruno was not nominated for Best Original Song for the Oscar, and instead, like, the very classical, like, Spanish ballad was the one that they put forward, because that's, like, the safe bet. It was the uh, very obvious nominee? Yes, Yes, the one that felt like it was tailor-made for for an Oscar nomination, mm. yes. Um, but, like, We Don't Talk About Bruno was the song that then became huge and was, like, super popular. So when they were planning out merch for Encanto, um, obviously Mirabelle was a big one, but then they also banked on Isabel, like, the beautiful, glamorous sister who can, like, make flowers come, you know, come out of thin air or whatever. Like, they fully believed that's going to be the other sister that kids are really going to like, so we're going to make Isabel dolls, we'll make Isabel costumes, we'll make accessories, and everybody's going to be happy. But the one that they wanted was the buff girl? Louisa's the one who became popular, who is buff and who is strong, and they clearly did not have enough foresight to realize this is a character that people are going to relate to and resonate with because she's nothing like any of the princesses and like those types of characters that came before and they whiffed it because like everybody was just demanding like where's fucking Louisa merch and they're still trying to like fill that void but it takes so long to make a lot of these products that they're still years later playing catch up to what their audiences actually want and I think that's what happened here is that they thought people were into the princess diaries because she's a princess, she's royal, the glamour, the dresses. And it's not, it's Mia. Like Mia as a character, it was relatable and she was klutzy and she was messy and she had emotional outbursts that, you know, weren't always well-developed because she's a teenager and like teenagers don't have great emotional regulation. And just Anne Hathaway sells you on every single one oh, of these things. Oh, and she's things. so good. Anne Hathaway's amazing. But instead they went full in on like, ooh, fancy royalty stuff. And nobody wanted that. No, like I said it earlier in the episode that I think everyone who's in this movie is doing really, really well. Like it's a very talented cast. Mm -hmm. Anne Hathaway feels like her hands are tied by the politics that are present in the movie and isn't allowed to, one, have her character shine, and two, let her shine as, like, as a, as a performer. Like, they don't give her enough. And, like, I guess these moments where she can smile and be happy that she's young and having fun and doing all of these things, you have these moments where, like, I guess the sleepover is, is her version of that, but mm -hmm. now she's having a sleepover with, like, seven-year-olds and she's 21, mm -hmm. and it feels like a Disney Channel moment for, like, 10-year-olds, and it feels juvenile, but she's also dealing with, like, 75-year-old men who want to take the crown, mm -hmm. and it's just this clash that doesn't understand mm -hmm. what, 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 what's going on. It's, it's not balancing trying to have, like, a more mature character and a more mature story with, like, the Disney product at the time. The one who's right will be honest and true and prize your heart of gold the way I do. He'll know that that will be your crowning glory, your whole life through. Your love will see that it's your crowning glory, the most glorious 
her in like this weird love triangle sort of thing, I think is just that's what the rom coms of the era were doing. Oh yeah. So it feels like they were trying to capitalize off of that a little bit. But it again, it doesn't make sense for the character. Like it isn't until her actual fucking wedding day where she's like, hey, um, Actually, I think it's really fucked up that you're making me get married in order to have a title when that's not required of men. Meanwhile, grandma has been killing it, uh, ruling this country by herself since, you know, King Rupert, R.I.P. Um, (laughs) (laughs) God rest his soul or whatever the line is. Yeah. Like, um, you know, since King Rupert's been gone, like, that should have been the entire movie it should have been from the beginning not that she's like oh i'm gonna be getting married to this english guy who's a pilot and he's really cool but actually i might have feelings for chris pine and oh that's that's complicated oh no woe is me it should have been from the beginning a defiant princess who is refusing to get married like that is what this whole movie could have been because that is mia mia would have been like no this is bonk i'm not doing this this is stupid Mm -hmm. and then you know reluctantly falling in love with chris pine like that that's the better story, and I don't know why they didn't do that. I don't know. Hindsight's twenty twenty. Um, I'm sure that they didn't mean for Andrew Jacoby to be so goddamn white bread. He's such a milk toast character, and it's not his fault. Like Chris they just Pri- did nothing with him. Like Chris Pine's character is fine. I don't know. I guess he's charming compared to the boring Brit. Mm-hmm. But like. I, I don't know. Maybe they made him so boring that it makes Chris Pine look more interesting in comparison without them having to actually like do much to write out his character. Mm-hmm. Um, you're right. It sh- that should have been the story. It would have been more in line with her character. It would have had like much stronger ideals for like a female led monarchy that was in line with the first movie. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Like honestly, you, could do- you wouldn't even have to change too much structurally. Mm-hmm. Just like, you know, she can still fall down and make an embarrassment. It's like, oh, well, can we really trust a woman who falls in the fountain to be our leader? Mm-hmm. Like, that's it's the same story. It just removes the love triangle. But again, like, the formula of what uh, a romantic comedy is and what a Disney thing says, there has to be romance. You can't reluctantly avoid Chris Pine. What do you expect? No, you're supposed to fall in love with him. He's a Prince Charming. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it just... God, it like it just feels like such a missed opportunity because I think that the Mia Thermopolis character is so fascinating. And oh God, this movie just whiffs it in that regard. And so, you know, we learn pretty immediately that we can't trust Chris Pine. Mm-hmm. We can't trust him, but also he's being double crossed by his own uncle. It's very Hamlet in that regard. Um, but it just doesn't work. Like the the chemistry is not there for these two characters. And like, I know that they couldn't get the guy from Rooney. I'm so sorry. I never remember his actual name Mm. because he was genuinely on tour with Rooney. So they couldn't do that. They had to do something else. So I get it. But the chemistry that Anne Hathaway has with Lily's brother in the first movie is palpable. Like it is hard not to slowly develop a crush on him and his unibrow in that first movie because we see him through Anne Hathaway's eyes Mm -hmm. and he becomes such a dreamboat. Chris Pine is like a copy paste Prince Charming type for me in this movie. Like nothing about him feels special. Nothing about him makes me like actively root for Mia to end up with him. I want Mia to end up alone. I don't want him anywhere near her. I mean, 
this is similar criticisms we had with like a Cinderella story where it's like, oh yeah, the guys in this movie are just severely underdeveloped. Yes. They're meant to be, and like, this is honestly a criticism I had with Titanic when we did that a few weeks ago where it's like, yeah, he just needs to look pretty enough. Mm-hmm. That's all, that's it. Women just care about cute boys. Who cares if he has a personality? Yes. Like, okay. That's what it feels like they are being, they, they are feeding. Yes. It's so ridiculous because like. What does he really do outside of, like, he antagonizes her back? He which I, her. Yeah, which, like, I <laughs> guess I understand that appeal. But there's just so much weird shit in this movie, though, that just distracts from all of it. Like, thrilled that Larry Miller comes back. Thank you, Paolo. We missed you. He was fine. His his moose <laughs> yelling, real funny. <laughs> like, yeah. that was also a trailer piece. I I love Larry Miller. I think Paolo's fine. Even he, even like he's doing good work, but they didn't write him good material again. Yeah, like, I I feel bad harping on the exact same points over and over again because I can feel myself doing it. But it's mm-hmm. so, it's such a prevalent problem consistently. Yeah, it really is. I mean, the Brigitte and Brigitte sort of shtick gets old really, really fast. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know what they're trying to do. They're trying to capture the stepsisters in Cinderella, like, kind of hijinks. Mm. That's what they're going for. And both actresses, I think, are really, really talented. But it just becomes so abrasive by the end of it because it's like, I I get it. Oh, God, I get it. I've been here already. Um, I mean, there's, like, this running gag of how, like, quote, unquote, the help know all the secrets of the palace, which is something that, you know, is is explored further in other shows, like, you know, Downton Abbey and, you know, to some extent, Bridgerton, which Ad- is... Adult a, shows? Yeah, which is a Shonda Rhimes property as well. And uh, I get that, but also they don't do enough with it for it to matter because it just kind of gets dumped during the wedding from Joe behind a door where it's like, oh yeah, by the way, Nicholas did not set you up. Like it is so just thrown for no goddamn reason. And it's like, this should have been a bigger moment. Like this should have been a bigger thing. And it's not. (laughs) No, it's, um, you have this through the whole movie where it's just somebody lurking in a doorway, listening to a conversation. And it only comes into play at the end of the movie when they need it to come into play. Like, so much of this could have been avoided if someone had just said something sooner, and they didn't, mm-hmm. and it just feels like because plot. Yeah, it's it's so weird. Um, so going back to this, why this movie is the worst sequel ever, uh, the second point that was made was erasing or sidelining beloved characters, and uh, whew, the, the words here, just pulling them from my heart and onto this page. Nothing says we couldn't get a large portion of our original cast back for the whole thing, quite like excising or seriously reducing the role of crucial characters from the previous film. Mia's love interest from the first movie, and notably, the man she marries in the books, becomes a mere footnote explained away in an opening montage. Mia's best friend Lily does show up, and I will say, uh, having her (laughs) surprise Mia by coming out of a closet, uh, played by Heather Matarazzo, Brilliant. That, that's brilliant. Uh, they get points for that. I don't think it was intentional, nope. but if you know, you know. Yep. But Lily fades into the background in a way that makes no sense for her character as established previously, reduced to quirky side bits while other people spend time talking and engaging with Mia. Yes, that is a huge problem because Lily demands attention. Like, mm-hmm. that is who she is. So the fact that she's just kind of there, ugh, so insulting. No, she has a character now. She flirts with the loud guy. Yeah. Oh, that's her character now. 
and Mia's mother, she pops up occasionally but is mostly absent, with not even a phone call in spite of several moments where surely Mia, who was established in the first movie as being very close with her mother, would have called to talk through. Losing the central relationship that made the first film feel authentic robs the sequel of the core of what made the first movie work. Yes. Okay. So... The lack of Mia's mom, I understand they're trying to have her get closer with grandma and like that's the connection. She's an adult now. She's got independence. She's international. Yeah, I get it. But also Mia and her mom are so close that like the fact that there's not even like a video chat scene Mm -hmm. where like she's crying to her mom and is like, this is really hard. I need your help. Please give me advice. And her mom isn't like, I'm on the next plane. Like her mom just shows up to her wedding. With a baby. With a baby, with baby Trevor. Yeah. And like when all of like the chaos is going on, when Mia's like, I can't do this. I have to leave. And grandma goes after her. Her mom also leaves, but not to go after her. Her mom leaves to go change the baby's diapers. Mm -hmm. Like that is not that character. That character would have been flying down those steps and yelling at paparazzi to help her daughter. Mm -hmm. It just feels like this movie is legitimately leaving behind everything from the first movie that people like. It's, yes. It's like we have to be international now. So we're not in we're not in San Francisco with their cool like bohemian apartment. Mom's not here anymore. Fuck mom. We're not dealing with that. We're dealing with politics now. That's adult things. That's that's the weight of the world, politics. Mm-hmm. The boyfriend? Uh-uh. No. Boring ass Chris Pine. Fine. Lily, eh, she's here, but like push her aside it aside feels from like- a really good line where she goes, "Uh, best friend, I hate you." Yeah. I like that. That's one of my favorite lines of the movie. Yeah, it is a real good one. Like it just feels like it's deliberately shoving everything out. It feels to <sighs> me, genuinely, and this is, again, no shade to Sean Rhymes. I think she's a genius. But, like, this feels like a different script for a different movie that was given a Princess Diaries filter. Because Lily feels like she's here because she has to be here. Mom mm-hmm. shows up because it feels like she has to show up. Mm-hmm. There's a couple of, like, references that are there that feel like they were contractually obligated to be here. But otherwise, this feels like one of those, like, the Prince and Me style movies that you would get on Netflix. Like, this feels like a princess switch. switch. Yeah, Yeah. it feels like something in that vein. It does not feel like a Princess Diaries movie. And I'm glad that you, uh, you know, brought up Chris Pine again and the lack of chemistry because uh, this Medium article also criticizes the lack of chemistry. I'm glad that we're in accordance. It says... What is happening between Anne Hathaway and Chris Pine in this movie? Because it's not romantic tension, even though the incredibly creepy, close-standing Chris Pine does that in numerous scenes, attempts to imply that it is. And also, while we're on the subject of Chris Pine being awkward in this movie, why does the true-born Genovian contender to the throne have an American accent and the other Genovians don't? Can Mm. Chris Pine just not do an accent so we decided no one would notice? Lack of accent aside, the scenes in which these two appear together are awkward, confusing, and poorly developed. Yet somehow, they're meant to make us believe that Mia, who apparently loves Genovia now, will give up her arranged marriage for him. To name a few moments of quote-unquote sexual tension, we have awkwardly corning Mia on the stairs with his legs spread apart to ask if she has second thoughts. A sequence in which they shout, I loathe you, at one another before kissing for some reason. Thumb wrestling under a tree while our hero asks Mia to tell him her desires. Normal first date stuff for the night before a girl's arranged marriage, am I right? Listen, I am all for a romance, but if you're going to make one, you should probably actually give us a basic shred of understanding as to why these characters fall in love with one another. Yeah, and I will say that, like, after their their their, their tryst in the woods all night or whatever, I like that the, there's commentary on, like, paparazzi. 
mm-hmm. because like in the early 2000s, especially come like 2004, like there was so much paparazzi pressure. Like Britney's about to have her meltdown. Like it, there's a lot going on. Paparazzi are why Princess Diana got killed. Mm-hmm. Like it's it, it's a very huge part of it. And I like that that is like an ensuing pressure for her to be on her best behavior and, you know, failing. But like that, sh- that, that, that's the conflict. That, that should be your central conflict. Those should be your villains. But also, that exists in the first movie and done better because they follow her on the beach and exploit the shit out of her. Mm -hmm. Like, I think it's handled better in that one. In this one, it's just like some sad setup of like, oh, and by the way, the creepy uncle did it. Ha ha ha. It wasn't actually him. Like, when in reality, the paparazzi would be fucking everywhere at all times, period. Mm-hmm. It would not have to be something that he has to, like, dastardly cook up. We learned that in the first movie, that paparazzi will absolutely be like, oh, a 15-year-old changing on the beach? Let's get photos. Oh, like, well, I mean, th- those were those are skeevy American paparazzi. These are dignified European paparazzi, the kind that killed a princess. Right, yeah, no, they fucking suck, too. They would have been everywhere. So, like, again, like, it, it's not even plain by the own rules that it establishes it, it it's so weird how mm-hmm. this works and like i will say there is a little bit more maturity to the way that it explains things because after that scene when she yells she throws you know like a scarf or whatever blanket at him and she even says like oh i'm sorry that it wasn't juicier for like your camera or whatever mm-hmm. kind of implying like they didn't actually do anything yeah um but like it's a very adult way of handling that material in a movie that is essentially meant for 11 year olds mm-hmm Hello. What's your name? Carolina. And what are your names? John. Did I see you messing with Carolina? They were tugging on my forehead. Excuse me, these children are? Most of them are orphans. We care for as many as possible. Kissing children, hugging orphans. Vulgar, low, despicable, political trick. Nothing feels like it pays off properly. It doesn't build up correctly, and then it doesn't have a proper payoff. So then you just have soup. You just have a lot of things floating around together, you know? Mm -hmm. And they're all cooked. You threw them all in the pot, and then you cooked them at the same time, so then your potatoes and your cream and your beef are all cooking at weird intervals and they should have their they should have their own specific care and they should be seasoned individually but you just threw them in. Yes. That's my problem. Yeah, and uh, there's also just so many things that start to make it feel like Disney's just becoming way too self-aware of themselves and one of those moments is unfortunately the song between Raven Simone and Julie Andrews. Mm-hmm. So one, Julie Andrews has gone on record multiple times to say like how that scene was really, really stressful for her because she had gotten, you know, botched nodes surgery mm-hmm. and Julie Andrews really can't sing anymore. It retired her for a bit. Yeah. So like it's very devastating to then be like, hey, this really traumatic thing, you should sing now. And it's it's a good song. I like the song. I think it's really, really cute. Mm-hmm. But it feels... It just feels so Disney, if that makes sense. And, like, that's no, it's no shade to Julie Andrews, no shade to Raven Simone. But, like, what the fuck is this song doing here? Why is there a random musical number in the middle of this movie? Like, it doesn't make sense. Yeah. Um, 
that's that's the sharpest tonal shift in the whole movie, I think. Because granted, Genovia is like a weird amalgamations of cultures and practices for a monarchy that is sort of up in the air for what applies when. But it still feels like a somewhat grounded version of what a royal and a royal court and, and hearings and laws and practices would be. Like, sure, they wear their goofy wigs, but, like, that's still reality. Versus this, which is gone fully into, like, silly Disney fantasy. Mm-hmm. Like, they just have a slide at the ready to install in the main hall? I guess so. I guess that's a thing they do, and I mean... It's fine, I guess, like, it's fun. It's I would also, go mattress surfing, sure, but it's just... It's also implied that it's been there for a while, because, like, Clarice has been like, oh, and me and Rupert used to do this all the time, blah, blah, blah. Like, there's just so much convenient plot device in this movie. So many convenient set pieces. You know what this movie feels like? And we described it as 13 going on 30, which it very much is. This feels more like an understanding of, like, wealth, and what kids would do with wealth, akin to, like, Richie Rich. Or, like, Blank Check, almost. Yeah, it feels so clearly like a kid's movie version of, like, look, little girls, you want to wear sparkly things, and you want to be in a parade, and you want to have sing-alongs at a dance party, and and, and, and you could throw orphans into a mansion, and they're going to stay there because they don't have an actual orphanage of their own. It just, it feels like such a very basic child understanding of what, you, child fantasy of what you would do if you were rich, if you were a princess, if you could do whatever yes. you wanted. But also, we're going to tie your hands behind your backs and constrain you to politics. <laughs> it's it's so frustrating and colliding with itself. And And here's what's, like, fucked about all of it, right? So... We have our big climax where she's like, I'm not getting married. She basically forces Parliament's hand to also vote. Uh, I hate that she has to give a speech that's like, think of your daughters. Think of your sisters, your whoever. Would you be forcing them to do what you're making me do? Um, Because I hate that that works. Um, I hate that a huge number of men will never be able to see women as humans until you personalize them. Mm-hmm. Uh, that shit bothers the hell out of me, but whatever. I, I mean, I hate the fact that she gives her speech and I mean, it, a, a cute moment is when she's being instructed, like make eye contact. Okay. A little too intense. Soften it just a bit. Like those are cute moments. I like that, mm-hmm. but someone else needs to like co-sign this and some guy does, and I go, who the fuck are you? And you go, oh, he's the guy who was asleep. And I'm like, oh, great, that guy saves the day. Right. It's- and also, Paul Williams is there, and we did nothing with him. Yeah, they do absolutely nothing with Paul Williams. Always a crime. Um, but, like, she has this big speech, and then because of that, genuine changes happen throughout Genovia. Women are allowed to be in Parliament. So Charlotte joins Parliament, and, like, that's great. You get all of, the, like, the, the kids that are orphaned moving into, you know, the, the secondary house because they deserve to have somewhere to be. Like, all that stuff is really lovely, but it feels like this weird, like, pro-feminist message tacked on at the end in a movie that is not feminist at fucking all. Like, this movie is so, like... Traditional. It is so traditional. And she spends the entire movie trying to bend to those traditions and without much like fighting. Like she just kind of like the the problem here is not, oh my God, I'm fighting against this because I don't want to do it. The problem is, oh, I'm not good enough to fall into these traditions. And it's like, what? What is happening here? Mm hmm. I, I don't know. I just. I don't know, man. 
I, one thing I will I do like about this wedding, um, I think the wedding's got good comedic timing. It does. I think uh, I really like the part where they're like, well, I don't know if she if if they're not going to rule and they're not going to rule, who's going to be it? And then fucking Bonnie Aaron shoots up and is like, me, no, not you. And they sit back down like, I don't know. Like, again, I think this movie comes together once it figures out what kind of movie it's trying to be. But the first half doesn't feel like this movie. No, they, this feels like a couple of different movies, like fighting for supremacy. Um, and that is not good for anyone. So in recent years. There have been talks about doing a third movie. It's in development, isn't it? So, yes, but it's complicated. So it was first announced um, in, like, the mid-2010s, and Gary Marshall was coming back for it. Because this is a Gary Marshall movie. Love love you, Gary. Mm-hmm. Um, and then he died. So the project was shelved pretty much indefinitely. Um, and then there were a couple rumors in, like, 2019 that it was going to come back. And then, obviously, COVID happened, so then that didn't happen. And now, as early as 2022, it's been talking about again. Julie Andrews has already said she will not come back if they do another one, um, because I think she, the understanding would be that, like, she's no longer with us, and this would be Mia's story. So they just fucking kill Grandma, even though Julie Andrews is still alive? Uh, she doesn't want to do it, is I know, thing. but, like... This feels wrong. I agree. It I think feels it like feels a wrong. bad omen to kill Julie Andrews in this universe. <laughs> I I agree with you on that. Um, I think that that would be a, a big issue. And it's been going back and forth on whether or not Anne Hathaway would even return. <laughs> what is, I, I know that the second movie lost focus and didn't spend enough time with Mia, but are we just, <laughs> are we recasting her? Because Anne Hathaway is such a, a, an intense powerhouse who has obviously done so many critically acclaimed performances since then. Like, in, in like, two years, I think she does The Devil Wears Prada and just goes on and becomes a superstar from there. But you can't replace Anne Hathaway and stuff. That doesn't work. Yeah, so what's what's interesting is that she has not been confirmed on coming back. She mm. has expressed interest, mm. um, but... I, I don't know. She's even said, like, she would love to do it. Um, but I, I don't know. Julie Andrews is, the, I think, the one that's like, yeah, I'm not, I'm not into this. I don't want to do it. Mm. So it's, I mean, like, they have somebody to write a script, uh, which I think is cool. But I, I don't know. Like, it, who knows? Who knows if it's actually going to happen? Who knows if they're going to be able to make a deal with Anne Hathaway to even get her to come back or if they're just going to like reboot it. Like who knows? No, no one seems to to know. Mm-hmm. Um, this kind of seems like one of those projects, sort of like Legally Blonde 3, where it's uh, just going to keep going and going and be discussed as, oh, we're hoping, oh, we're hoping, and then just doesn't happen. And honestly, I think I'd be okay with that. Yeah, I mean, I don't think I need a th- third one of these movies, um, especially with how complicated politics have gotten uh, geopolitically over the last 20 years. I don't really need to worry about what Genovia is up to these days. I don't really know, want to know what their parliament is like. See, what's super funny, too, is that, uh, you know, when when they're trying to figure out the potential suitors for, for Mia, they have the scene where they kind of do a house bunny style, like scrolling of, Mm -hmm. you know, PowerPoint presentation. Mm -hmm. And what I do like is that they acknowledge the people that are potential, like, oof, too old or oof, too young, because that is very much a thing that does not get discussed uh, when talking about Royals. Yeah. But they, (laughs) 
They get to the prince mm-hmm. of England, mm-hmm. and he still has hair, and he's still kind of hunky, and like there's this whole thing of like, oh my god, yes, he's such a dreamboat, and they're like, well, you can't. He's in line for his own title because he will one day be the king of England. Mm-hmm. Um, and it is fascinating how in 2004 people were still very much on board with, oh my god, yes, what a hunk, and now it's like, oh, that guy, the guy who was racist to Meghan Markle. Fuck him. Fuck yeah. that guy. Yeah. Um, which I think is real, real funny. Um, well, it's very uh, a very American uh, approach to the English royal family. Yes. Like how for whatever reason, people in this country are really obsessed with every royal wedding that takes place over there. What's also really interesting is obviously this is a hindsight sort of situation. When Mia is doing her like royal duties and she's wearing her like her pencil skirts and mm-hmm. she's, you know, opening the orphanage and doing all of the things she does her styling is eerily similar to kate middleton and it like i would not be surprised if like kate middleton's like i don't know royal wardrobe or costumer i don't know what i don't you know call if they're it. a costumer but yeah yeah it's not her, a costume her dresser her dresser know. yeah whoever uh was a big fan of this movie because like the hair is the same the length of the skirts are the same and it's just like Oh, okay. Uh, very, very much some Kate Middleton vibes uh, going on in here, which is it's just, again, because this happened beforehand, so it's weird. I don't know. Like, if they did a third movie, I would like to see Anne Hathaway and Chris Pine, you know, try again to prove that they can do this. Because I, mean, I don't think it's either of their faults. He He's certainly grown a, a tremendous amount as an mm-hmm. actor since this movie. And Anne Hathaway has just continued to be great. Yeah, she's... I was never on that team of people who randomly shit on Anne Hathaway a bunch in she was too perfect and they got mad about it? I, like, never was no. part of that. I've always Absolutely loved not. Anne Hathaway. And I think she's super talented. Um... And I, I don't know, if she wants to come back and do this, I would love to see that character again, especially as an adult, because I love Mia Thermopolis and I love Anne Hathaway, but I also would not have my feelings hurt if they were like, you know, we're just going to let that sleeping dog lie. That, I, I would be okay with that. <laughs> I, I just don't, I'm wary of every legacy sequel we get. I don't have high expectations considering most of the results mm-hmm. and you just leave, leave the memories alone as it were. Mm-hmm. Prime Minister. Yes, Princess. I move to abolish the marriage law as it applies to present and future queens of Genovia. Will anyone second my motion? Just keep eye contact with them. Stare them down. No, not, not, soften, soften. Good. I second the motion. It's time we had a new tradition. I like change. I may grow a mustache. I think you'd look marvelous with a mustache. You know, my father always favored a Van Dyke. Gentlemen, gentlemen, please. But BJ, after we watched this movie, you were curious and went to YouTube to be like, I wonder if people have done like video essays on this, kind of breaking down what's going on. Because there is writing on it, Mm -hmm. but... This is the kind of movie that you could see a lot of video essays being on. Like, you know, the age of people who would have seen it growing up and are now like 27 years old and have YouTube careers. Mm-hmm. So let's let's just take a gander. And an interesting discovery was that um, barring, I think, one example 
pretty much every single video essay or reaction or first time viewing of this film was by dudes. Uh Uh-huh. And I'm not going to say that men can't necessarily like review or critique cinema targeted towards women or young women. Uh, That's not what I'm getting at. However, there is an interesting development that ties in with how similar to guys like shitting on Twilight, which, I mean, we were not kind to when we did it earlier in the month, but we were at least trying to be fair about it. Mm -hmm. There's benefit to shitting on stuff that's targeted towards young girls or like a made-for-TV rom-com or what have you. Mm -hmm. And I know you have a lot of feelings about it because you were pacing around the apartment for like a half hour (laughs) after we made this discovery. So you know how there's like that little brother sort of thing of like, you're not allowed to pick on my little brother, only I can pick on my little brother. Neither of us have little brothers, but yeah. We don't, but it's it's that sort of like... No, I get you. ...phenomenon. That's kind of how I feel about this movie. Um, so doing my research, I, I looked for writing on this, and a majority of the people who wrote about this movie outside of just like, I had to review this for my job, are women, and it's women assessing why this is different than the first movie why it's not as good or like there was a couple that were like in defense of it but they basically were like this movie is shit and it's fun and that's why i like it Mm -hmm. and that's their defense which that's fair that's fair i i defend shitty movies all the time (laughs) there's a lot of bad movies that i have a good time with exactly um but when it came to youtube and seeing all of these video essays there was like one or two women that actually broke it down and they were assessing the characters and assessing why this is different from the first one and how it feels like they betray that character like they're really well done but the overwhelming majority are just guys shitting on this and making fun of the character and making fun of the writing and making fun of the situations without actually breaking down why it doesn't work. Yes. And as as a person who has spent a considerable part of my adult life watching video essays on many, many topics, I have two answers for why that is. Mm -hmm. One of them, Doug Walker, nostalgia critic, who's a bad critic. Yes, and, and, and he births a legion of copycats that just make my life a living fucking hell. And you also have cinema sins. Mm-hmm. And what those two have in common is they made a killing over like the last 10-ish years, not critiquing films, more so just commenting on them, mm-hmm. reacting to them, writing bits about just a minor absurdity that no one would ever see but we're going to make a joke about it. Mm-hmm. And when you have the next Karate Kids of the world. Mm-hmm. When we did that episode, I'm not sure if it came up in the topic, but one of the earliest examples of people reviewing that in the internet age was Nostalgia Critic. And I watched his video, and it was really bad criticism. And he ignored all of the sentimental parts, all the good parts. He highlighted all the garbage and then went, see, it's a bad movie because look at all this bad shit and painted a very specific narrative. Mm-hmm. Because internet reviews and reactions for a long time, we're all built on anger mm-hmm. and rage. And it still kind of is, like Velma happened. Well, yeah, it's it's very much like in order to prove that you are above or better than the material you're presented, you have to shit on it. Yes. And it just comes from a really misogynistic, entitled yeah. way when it's guys dunking on 
children's media or like young girl media. Yeah, like if you're going to do that sort of thing, go after a fucking Marvel movie or a James Cameron movie or something that's making millions and millions of dollars and like who fucking cares? Go for it. Well, it's the thing that we see all the time where it's like, you can point to Michael Bay's Transformers, which were decidedly four boys, especially with how they filmed their only female character. Mm-hmm. And they're bad. They're really bad movies. Like, I fucking hate the Transformers <laughs> movies so goddamn much. And they only get worse. But guys aren't going to shit on those the same way they're going to shit on, like, a love story. Right. Or a princess story. Yes. Because it speaks to sensibilities. It feels so specific and targeted and in a weird way it feels like it's punching down Mm -hmm. and it's one of those things where like i'm not saying that these movies are above critique because they're not we're doing it right now we spent a long time of this episode critiquing this movie we spent a whole hour (laughs) shitting on this movie but there's a huge difference between us saying hey this is betraying this character or hey this story is like mixing tropes that don't make sense in this world versus some guy that's just like oh i get it they're referencing the first movie that's fucking dumb that's fucking stupid it's bad it's bad criticism it's just bad it's commenting it's observing it's reacting but there's no critical thought because you're not going any deeper than that you're not actually analyzing anything and especially with like in our modern age of like podcasts and letterboxd and twitter and whatever where people review things probably tiktok i'm not on there but i feel like so much of it is people are watching something with the intent to either monetize their experience watching it Mm -hmm. or build some sort of credentials off of reviewing or rating it, but it feels like merely checking a box. Like, oh, I watched this thing. Here's what I thought. Moving on. Right. Four stars, two stars, whatever. Moving on. Look, I watched 450 films this year. Mm -hmm. Moving on. That's what it feels like. And I don't, I don't know, man. I don't watch as many movies as most people do, but I like to think that I think about movies an awful lot. Maybe not more or less than a lot of people, but I I sit with them. I try to, and I feel bad when I'm commenting on a lot of the same things that people who spend less time with the movie do, because it's, it's obvious that there's problems with this movie. It's obvious that there's problems with a lot of movies, but it feels insincere to only pick up those bad things and then not go deeper as to why. Yes, and and you're totally right. For me, what it will always come down to is that there is an acceptability in online spaces, especially when it comes to critiquing things, whether it's YouTube or TikTok or wherever, where men have sort of understood that a cheap way to earn cheap heat is to shit on things that are popular with women because two things will happen. One, men are going to side with them and Mm -hmm. they're going to have a bunch of bros pumping them up. Hell yeah, take down a Princess Diaries 2 royal engagement. It was a little too much on its throne. We really need to knock that down. But then at the same time, it's then going to bring out women who are either going to defend it or who are going to pick fights with them, and that increases their engagement. Mm -hmm. And it is a horrible cycle that we are all forever trapped in. And, like, it made me feel bad about having as many criticisms for this movie as I do, because all I could think about is, I don't want to be lumped in with those fucking assholes. Oh, no, I feel the same way. Like, 
at the time that we're recording this, um, the Twilight episode is about to come out. It's not out just yet. Mm -hmm. But I'm like, I don't want people to sit there and be like, I listened to This Ends at Prom so that you can not say the exact same things everyone always says when they criticize the Twilight films. And I'm like, yeah, but they're genuine problems. Now, here's those. Let's try and do something else with them. Mm -hmm. It just, I don't know. I just, it's frustrating. I, um... I I I want I watched Twelve Angry Men the other day. Yeah, at like seven in the morning. It, it was, was wild. <laughs> it was great. Tubi was like, "Hey, this is coming off our service soon. Do you want to watch Twelve Angry Men?" And I went, "Absolutely." <laughs> and there's a scene that I love. First of all, and and that whole movie politically, I think lines up really really well even today. But there's a scene I really love where the one of the angriest of the angry men mm-hmm. is like coughing. And ranting, and he's going on this fucking horrible rant about those people, and they're a problem, and he's using a lot of these broad brushstroke prejudices. And every other dude in this room just ends up walking away to, like, various corners and just ignoring him, and he gets frustrated. He's like, why aren't you listening to me? I'm speaking the truth. Ah! And you just don't acknowledge him. And the only dude who was remotely on his side says... Sit down, don't say another word. And then that man doesn't talk for the rest of the movie. Mm-hmm. And I just keep thinking about that scene in like a modern climate where it's just like, dude, it's so easy. It's so easy to just not rile people up who have nothing interesting to say. Just ignore them. They'll go away. You can't dunk on them. That's not going to help them. Like we, we are in a time where people are above shame. Mm-hmm. So, like, shitting on dudes who are like, actually, I think Princess Diaries 2 isn't very good. And I'm like, well, I think it's not good, too, but here's why you're wrong. Right. Like, that doesn't get anywhere. <laughs> right. It's just frustrating. This is indeed my royal enragement. <laughs> but, but that's exactly it, is it's like... I want to be able to have these conversations about why movies like this don't ultimately work. But the problem we run into is that it immediately then becomes a justification for like actual misogynists who Mm -hmm. are like genuinely bad. And it's like, see, this isn't prom doesn't like that movie. So clearly we shouldn't be making it. Those people are not listening to us. I'm speaking in hypotheticals here. But that's the sentiment that I'm getting at in like a broader sense is that Women are not allowed to critique the art that is made for us because it empowers men to critique the art that is made for us. And they're not good at it, but they're louder. Yeah. (laughs) And it's very frustrating. (laughs) So I think with all of these, these fun little tangents we've gone on, the time has come. Harmony, Princess Diaries 2, Royal Engagement, is asking you to the prom. Is it a yes, a no, a maybe, or are you buying her a ticket so she can go on her own? There's nothing quite as elegant and regal as uh, an episode about trying to unpack why sausage is made, is there? Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's a no for me. I also hope that, like, even us just talking about the concept of reviewing films and analyzing films is meaningful in some way. Because I just, I don't need to revisit this movie. It, mm-hmm. it, It's one of those kinds of sequels that feels like it's cheapening the original mm-hmm. just because there is now there's the canon of the books which is the first movie which is great and now there's this separate corporate canon that disney has produced mm-hmm. that is not what i want to believe in you know mm-hmm. so i'm with you i'm i'm set on this i'll stick to the first one if i ever want to revisit this universe if i just want to watch anne hathaway and julie andrews be lovely like 
that's good for me. And they they really are lovely. They are. If we're going to give one positive, I think the two of them are just absolutely magnetic together on screen. Mm-hmm. I love watching them together. And if they do make a third movie and they're not both in it, that will be a huge shame because they are just fantastic. That also means that we're not going to get Joe. And I like Joe. And he, I love Joe. He doesn't really get nearly as much to do in this movie because he's off being a Casanova. And instead we get a bodyguard who looks like he's in a Britpop band. Yeah, that's true. We do get, I will give Joe one one thing though. He does absolutely threaten to kill a guy. <laughs> oh yeah. Which is great. He's like, I have qualified immunity in 46 countries. And it's like, Joe might have uh, buried some bodies places we don't know about. I like, the thing is, that whole scene doesn't feel like it belongs in this movie. No. He's like, I have a unique set of skills and <laughs> diplomatic immunity. It, it sounds like Taken. It or really or it's does. got the menace of uh, Lawrence Fishburne saying, I will break your cheekbone with a tiny hammer and then I'll kill you. <laughs> <laughs> like, it's so intense and menacing and specific. It really is. It's wild. This movie is... A fucking mess. I don't know. I just, I wish it was better. That's what I'm frustrated by. I'm not sitting here being mad that it's not good. I'm frustrated that it's not good because I want better. I agree. And we were hey, rooting for you. Hey, we were all rooting for we you. We do get really cute era Abigail Breslin, like her signs she's so era. Tiny. She's so tiny and cute. And I'm, I'm glad she's there. But yeah, this movie is not great. Oh, well. You can't, you can't win them all. No. <laughs> Alrighty, thank you so much for listening as always you can follow the show on twitter and instagram at this ends at prom you can follow me on twitter instagram and tiktok at bj colangelo and you can follow me on twitter and instagram at velocitraptor velosa underscore trap underscore tour and as always thank you to the sonder moms for allowing us to use title as our theme song harmony what cool band do you recommend this week inspired by the princess diaries 2 so I need someone poppy, because that's basically like just the vibes of this movie is pop music. I Kelly, mean, Clark, we, we, Kelly, Clarkson Kelly Clarkson is here. <laughs> Look at that. Kelly Clarkson is at that tier of pop stardom early in her career where she's ending up in Disney soundtracks. Hell yeah, Breakaway. Yeah. So I needed something just like any kind of lovely form of pop. The band that I'm going with this time is called Shallow Pools. Um, they have been releasing singles. I don't think they have a proper album out yet, but they've been putting out singles for a couple of years now. Um, their most recent two are Say What You Want and Now or Never, which only just dropped in February. Very danceable, good melodies, um, almost like an indie disco vibe for some of their singles. Um, I'm a big fan. I, I just, I think everyone here is producing really good music and I only discovered them recently. So I'm looking forward to whatever else they're doing moving forward. Amazing. And definitely, if you don't have it already favored, um, on our link tree on all of our social media, there is the link to the playlist that we update to include all the bands that we shout out at the end of the episodes. So make sure that you are listening to that. As of right now, that playlist is about 18 hours long. So Hey, you're welcome. (laughs) And that's only like three songs per artist. So how about that? (laughs) Just tunes for almost literal days. Alrighty, friends, we will see you next week. And as always, save that last dance for us. Bye. Bye.
princess never chases a chicken. This episode was brought to you by Pod People Productions. To find more episodes of this show and others, please visit podpeople.me.